So in Europe, the underlying assumption is that your guideline guides you actually around complexity. In the UK, there is minimalisation of complexity so that you can check it off on a, on a box on your quaff. Hello, I'm Tom Moberly, UK editor of the BMJ. Today we're at the Nuffield Summit, where each year we record a round table. And today we're asking, why are we failing people with multiple conditions? We know that the number of people living with multiple health conditions is rising year on year, and yet training, guidelines, organisations and physical spaces in healthcare still largely focus on single diseases or organ systems. This means that patients in the NHS are often treated as if their conditions exist in isolation and that their care lacks coordination and isn't as good as it should be. To look at why patients with multiple conditions pose a challenge to the NHS and what we can do to improve the care they receive, I'm joined by a panel of doctors from across primary and secondary care. Can I get you all to introduce yourselves? My name's Luella Vaughan. I'm a senior clinical research fellow at the Nuffield Trust and I'm also a consultant acute physician at the Royal London Hospital. My name is Jihad Malassi. I'm clinical chair of Thanet CCG, a working GP two days a week and a clinical director for East Kent Hospital Transformation Services. Um, my name is Ramya Matthew. I'm a GP in London um, and I also lead a quality improvement team in Islington um, and I'm a, a columnist for the BMJ as well. Okay, uh, David Oliver, consultant in geriatric medicine and acute internal medicine at Royal Berkshire Hospital, also a weekly BMJ columnist and uh, former Vice President of the Royal College of Physicians and uh, President of the British Geriatric Society. Um, can I start by asking um, what sort of patients we're, we're talking about here? If you've got any particular examples of um, a group of patients recently you've dealt with who've got, who, who have particular problems with this issue? Uh, you see, I mean, this is a daily challenge um, for in our, in our on-take. So I um, particularly work over in East London, um, where the rates of complex comorbidity are actually quite high <coughs> in, our, in our local Asian population. Um, they frequently have cardiovascular disease. They often smoke. Um, there's often problems also with obesity, diabetes, so really quite complex groups of disease. And these patients frequently come in with very non-specific presentations, shortness of breath, chest pain, not feeling very well. Um, and the process of trying to decide, we know through what's wrong with these patients, um, the whole entire system is set up around having very specific diagnostic categories for patients, particularly once they move past the, the initial first 24 to 48 hours of care. The other group of patients that we're increasingly seeing um, are groups of vulnerable people, um, so young adults who often have multiple um, comorbidities, often related to congenital or, or disease in early childhood, uh, and this is also an increasing and underrepresentative group that we're starting to have to, to deal with, which is not well catered for actually anywhere in the system. We do this very badly, uh, and young adults... Um, Children who have been very well taken care of in the paediatric system, that transition into the adult period um, is one that's really marked by uh, quite severe health problems and often deterioration in health, and we manage that very badly. So I have an example of a gentleman I went to visit. He has 12 or 13 medical conditions, too young to have those conditions, frankly, diabetic, on insulin, COPD, ischemic heart disease. He has signs of heart failure already. He's receiving treatment from general practice, from the community teams, from mental health teams, from intermediate care teams. And this gentleman really is placed in the wrong habitation. He, he's not receiving the right sort of care. He can't leave his home. 
And this is something typical, I think, of the type of patients that you see in deprived communities, particularly where I work in Thanet and other coastal communities. It's something that I feel passionately about. And Remya, for you, what are the typical patients with these sort of problems? Well, I guess I want to just take it back to what, what the definition of multimorbidity is. And actually, that's um, two or more long-term conditions. And actually, you know, we probably do quite a good job for the people with two long-term conditions. But it, it's really the other end of the spectrum that I think are really, we don't we do not do a very good job at all. Um, and, and it's not just the people with five or six conditions, but also those people with sort of learning disabilities and with severe mental illness and real complex needs. And the system just isn't designed or set up in a way to, to meet their needs very well. And often we're in this situation where they're going off to, you know, six different outpatient specialties. Uh, and how this plays out in reality is that, you know, they'll see a diabetologist one day that's sort of increasing their medication, a renal physician who then decides to stop it, a cardiologist who's then doing something else. And then it's often the, the generalists that are in the middle of all of this that are left to pick up the pieces. And it, it's confusing for us. It's confusing for the patients as well. So I, I think that's one of the real issues. And I think the other point that I'd like to make is is that there's a real issue around um, the skill set of our workforce. And I think probably it's a it's a bit of a generalisation just or it's a bit simplistic to say that we just need more generalists. Um, because, you know, that that's definitely the case, but we also need the specialists who have more generalist skills as, as well. David. Okay, well, it's the new norm to have multiple long-term conditions. If you look at the Scottish School of Primary Care study, about 3 million people, if you're over 65, most people will have three or more long-term conditions. But they don't need to be life-limiting long-term conditions. So you could have three low-key things wrong with you and you're not troubling the services very much. So I don't think those individuals are our focus, really. It's people with multiple life-limiting long-term conditions. But there's a bit of an overlapping Venn diagram between those people and people who are frail, in other words, people who have poor functional reserve, who fatigue easily, present frequently to services, and of course the people with a long-term condition that is dementia, which often travels uh, with those conditions. And then there's a further overlap uh, with people who have disability that may be related to the condition or may be age-related disability. And you'll see people in all, in all of those uh, domains. The other thing to say, though, is we characterise the multiple long-term conditions as just an age-related thing. But if you look at maps of socioeconomic deprivation, even within the same city, uh, the age at which people have three or more conditions can be mid-50s on average in more deprived areas. And so we have big differences in healthy life expectancy because of that. Um, Those individuals are ill-served by the system because primary care consultation is based on quite short consultations and often single disease pathways most of secondary care medicine is apart from geriatrics and acute medicine is is based around single diseases and um, people report because we've got to think about the patient and the care experience seeing multiple professionals multiple times in different systems when what they want actually is uh, care coordination in the community and kind of whole stay clinicians. So I think it does come back to this thing about ologists who've got some good generalist skills or generalists who can competently manage a lot of stuff within their own remit and then refer for input when required. And the final thing to to throw in is that multiple long-term conditions mean multiple medications. And so we often end up with uh, a big polypharmacy burden with each encounter and each incentive and each specialty adding their own medications on and 
you need people to actually have the courage to do some radical de-prescribing, which often doesn't happen. So is the key issue the fact that we have focused for too long on single diseases and and gone further and further down that line? And so these patients with, I think we're talking about people with more than two, that we generally, would people agree that we're generally doing okay with people who have two because there's often an overlap between two or three conditions people often have and it's the ones with lots who are all being treated individually. Is that really where the problem's coming? Well, part of the problem with the definition is that, you know, multi is just more than two. Mm. But, you know, you could stand here and say, well, I'm multi-morbid, you know, my sight's not great and, you know, I've got a bit of celiac disease and I'm asthmatic and I'm a bit coffee. But actually none of that is interfering. And it also depends which two conditions you've got. Because if you're a poorly controlled diabetic, you can have multiple comorbid, you can have multiple complications as a result of the diabetes and actually be very poorly disabled and in and out of hospital as a result of a single condition. And then if that interacts with something like, I don't know, asthma or heart disease, then actually you've got kind of really quite a, a complex set of situations to deal with and the patient actually only has two main underlying conditions but quite complicated. So all of this stuff is, is actually quite difficult to talk around. Um, but because as David said, there's a sets of overlapping groups where the needs are actually just not quite the same. But to a certain extent, as Chris Whitty pointed out, we're, we're victims of our own success. So, you know, the, the massive improvements in both treatment and um, delivery of um, for time critical interventions like um, myocardial infarction, stroke, better ITU services, now means that we've actually got a cohort of patients who previously would have died much younger, who were living with the the, the consequences of actually being, how can I put this, properly saved. You know, if you don't die of your myocardial infarction, that's terrific, but 15, 20 years later, you're probably going to have a degree of heart failure, which actually may be enormously problematic. So, so as David pointed out, it's not just the life saved, it's actually the number of disease-free years that you get. And you will have a period of disease-free years, but the consequence will also be that there will be disease years frequently attached to that. So it's a victim of our own success. And, and previously, and historically in the UK, lots of these things were poorly treated in comparison with the US and other healthcare systems. Um, and, and the improvements in things like stroke and myocardial infarction in the UK uh, have been absolutely phenomenal. Diabetes also, but that's because of the very disease-specific focus. Jihad, what do you think? Uh, it's a difficult one, actually. I think of it from a practical perspective. Whether the person has two diseases in, in certain areas or four diseases is past the point, I think, for some of us. Some of, some of them have complex two diseases, as, as Luella has, has mentioned. But actually, the people who present with two diseases are closer to 40 than they are to 60. And the people who reach 60 have four-plus diseases or five diseases. And as for the medication, that is something that is exponential. So it's not, uh, it's not a linear process. So they have to have medications to treat not only their, their primary disease, but their secondary symptoms and the sequelae and, and the rest. I think the challenge really is a systemic one. I mean, it's a reflection of how we have progressed our educational system, how our financing is structurally biased towards certain types of care. And I think we could do a lot to actually address the the system issues to the benefit of everyone. If you look, for example, at the funding settlement between primary and secondary care, which which is inversely related to the numbers that we treat, and 90 to 10, then 
What we're really talking about is trying to ease the life and ease the burden of these patients, as well as our GP colleagues and as well as our hospital consultant colleagues, to improve flow through hospitals, to improve your bed blocking situation. I don't like using the term bed blocking, stranded or super stranded, but all of those problems can be eased by enhancing and improving the care for these patients. And unless we start to have a conversation about how we address our education and systemic problems with funding and organisation, then I don't think we're going to come close to touching the difficulties around this. I, I, I think that we have what we have done is that we've really failed to acknowledge the complexity of treating and managing people with multimorbidity, um, and that has led to real sort of system failing. So, for example... It's, it's a real challenge um, to do this in a 10-minute GP appointment. Um, actually, even getting the person into the room can take five of those minutes, and then you're really up against it. You know, you're just trying to assimilate what their problem list takes some time. Looking through their medications takes a little bit more time. And then before you've even, you know, got into the discussion, it your time is up almost. Um, and that's, that's a real challenge because, you know, what we should really be doing is having these you know, really tough discussions with people, weighing up risks and benefits and, you know, trying to sort of um, enable and empower them to make sort of the best decisions for them and to really find out what is important for them. But the system just doesn't allow for that at the moment. And I think that, that that's the real issue. Um, the other part of it, though, is also um, our, our skill set, I think. So I think it's probably a bit broad brush to say that all GPs or all, all generalists are good at this stuff actually what I would say is um, you know when I, I look at how this plays out in general practice I would say that actually people you know the very experienced GPs that towards the end of their career are very good at this they've been doing this you know for a very long time because a lot of this requires clinical judgment it re requires clinical experience and actually they were here prior to the era of guidelines whereas the, younger GPs like myself have have come on in in this sort of environment where clinical guidelines have really sort of driven you know driven how we practice medicine um, and people are afraid they're really afraid to work outside of guidelines so we have to acknowledge some of this and actually it's, it is a much more litigious environment as well so how do we sort of um, enable people to you know get that confidence to work outside the guidelines and really sort of use those principles outlined in things like, for example, the nice multi-morbidity guidelines to manage these people um, in a more coordinated way that it's in their best interest. And is the, do you have any specific training or discussions around that interaction between diseases or are you just looking at managing a patient who's got this condition one and condition two and doing it best in parallel? Is there any kind of particular training around the fact beyond the sort of guidelines on multimorbidity because there's a lack of research in that in terms of that interaction and the two kind of rub me up. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I want to take this right back to medical school because I think there's a, a real issue there. So, you know, I, admittedly, I am still 10 years post-medical school, so I don't know if, if some things have changed since then, but <coughs> we still teach medical students in the practice and I don't get a sense that things have changed very much. But actually, there was no sort of... Um, you know, coverage of topics like multimorbidity, polypharmacy, deprescribing, the whole sort of clinical reasoning, shared decision making, all of that was completely missed out in our, our curriculum. So I think there is a real gap there that needs to be addressed. Um, and I also think that there's, you know, issues around the sort of how we 
how we assess um, medical students and even at, at postgraduate level, it's very much focused on a, a knowledge base. So, you know, do you know the answer to this? Whereas actually it's much more about the application of this knowledge in real life, which is much more challenging. And actually we, we should be much more focused on that. Okay, just one quick thing that, Luella said, which I agree with just to add to the complexity, there are certain comorbidity clusters that travel together. So the, the person who's got di diabetes and hypertension and peripheral vascular disease and cerebrovascular dementia and chronic kidney disease, all basically caused by the arteriopathy, those kind of comorbidity clusters are quite predictable and you can set up services to for people you might realistically expect to have those issues. And in fact, let's say you are a nephrologist doing dialysis, you will be dealing with all of those issues on a, on a daily basis. Um, but I think to an extent, Tom, your question was about the history of how we got to where we've got to. So it's just worth saying that when the NHS was founded just after the war, 48% of people died before they got to 65, and it's only 12% now. So people who generally used to die from single diseases in midlife, including infectious diseases, now survive those uh, into later life. You don't die from your heart attack anymore. You live with chronic cardiac failure, for instance. Um, as the a number of guidelines, the, the amount of evidence for good practice has grown, as the focus on safety and quality has grown exponentially, it's much harder now than it used to be at the start of my career for a good, competent generalist to manage most of the conditions with the knowledge they had in their own head. And in fact, it's often seen as less acceptable by the public and the politicians. So you've got this, you've got this tension. If you have your diabetic emergency or your acute coronary syndrome, you want to be looked after early on by the people with the most expertise who do that every day and are in their comfort zone. But on the other hand, if you're living with six different medical conditions, you do not want to be passed around like a piece of meat between different ologists. And although a GP just told me when I was coming out of my bedroom this morning that GPs were brilliant at multimorbidity and us hospital doctors were useless and over-investigated everybody, which didn't go down well with me, um, the reality is, if you have general practice designed around 10-minute consultations with single disease contract incentives and with a lot of nurses doing a lot of the long-term conditions management, neither it nor hospital medicine, which is traditionally based around single organ diseases, can quite meet, uh, meet those challenges. And I think the shift we have to make is, and I know this is a truism, is more towards proactive care planning care coordination, shared care around patient goals, so that instead of constantly being in reactive mode, either in acute care or primary care, we're sitting down with people who have those five or six conditions and those 10 or 11 medications and doing some care planning and care coordination upstream. And I don't think at the moment the system gives people enough time to do that, even though the knowledge base is there about how to do it. Well, have you got any sort of thing to bring from the sort of international perspective on this? Uh, well, I was actually just going to make um, two slightly separate points. Um, so one is um, uh, is the complete disappearance of clinical pharmacology from um, the undergraduate curriculum. So at the point at which I went to medical school, I was tortured with two years of, of pharmacology, so basic pharmacology and then clinical pharmacology. And this is and, and it's dry and dull stuff to learn. It's about what the drug is, how it interacts with the receptor, what are it so you know when you use it, what are the side effects, all of that kind of thing, um, plus all of the interactions. But I'm trained as a general physician. And actually, once you're on five or more medications, your risk of having a drug-drug interaction is 80%. And so I actually carry all of that still mostly around in my head. 
And, you know, when I can, can skim a drug list and say, well, those two are a problem, that's a problem, we need to stop this, that will be interacting with that. One of the clinical pharmacologists at my hospital stood up a couple of weeks ago and said to my junior doctors, you do not need to know anything about any drugs, it's all in, in the BNF. And, you know, if he's really suggesting that every single person we have come in on 20 or more medications mm. sits there and flicks through the BNF looking for a drug interaction, it, it, that's just absolutely impossible. And I think the other really interesting thing is I absolutely take your point about guidelines, but I think there's a really interesting issue that many of the guidelines that are set up in the UK are set up so that they're auditable at national level because they're attached to funding. So if you make the comparison between um, the European Society of Cardiology guidelines for hypertension, I love these guidelines. They're 100 plus pages long. The recommendations about what you treat, uh, these are the underlying, so these are the under other conditions that the patient will have which will be life limiting. These are the antihypertensive drugs that will have an, a positive effect on that. These are the ones that will have a bad effect on that. These are the interactions, off you go and make your decision. In the UK, it's this drug first, that drug second, unless you happen to be of a different ethnic background, in which case it's this drug first, that drug second. So you've got one set. So in Europe, the underlying assumption is that your guideline guides you actually around complexity. In the UK, there is minimalisation of complexity so that you can check it off on a, on a box on your quaff. Um, and I think that actually sort of drives this attitude that, that, I hate to say this, medicine is simple, patients are simple, patients are not simple, patients are complex, medicine is hard. It's frequently often hard to know if you've made a difference to a patient with chronic illness. Sometimes I think I send them home and I'm not always convinced that they're a lot better than they were before, but they might be and then I need the bed. Um, you, you know, and, and that's the kind of the harsh, the harsh reality of it, that these things are difficult and they require judgment and they require a vast amount of knowledge that sits under, underneath that and the kind of quest to simplify medicine and to codify it and to make it um, able to be something that you can check against and hand money to someone, I, I think does this, does this group of patients a really great disservice. Remember, you touched on the issue of sort of guidelines <coughs> playing into this, and particularly, you know, people trying to follow them and the sort of litigious culture. Do you, could you touch a bit more on that? Yeah, I, I just think it's it's really hard because when you've got a guideline there that is telling you that you, if X happens to do Y, then you know you've got to be quite bold to be able to step outside of that. Unless, of course, you've really been grounded in that sort of framework of how to manage multimorbidity and so on. So that's why I think we really have to get in there right at the beginning with this. Um, and I, I think there's all sorts of problems in the way we sort of assess um, assess students and assess um, postgraduate doctors. So there's this real kind of push towards single best answer. There isn't a single best answer, you know, like medicine is hard it's really complex and you don't know if you've done the right thing but it's about being able to sort of weigh up to judge to make those tough decisions and and you know to have an approach to that and I think that that's what we really need to be refining. I think there's this really interesting issue of doctor as hero so if you with a you know frequently with single disease particularly if it's something where it's um where a part of the condition is is time critical um, it's heroic and you know whether or not you've made a difference. But actually discomfort around, um, comfort with ambiguity, not being sure if you know what's going on, have you got the right answer, being prepared to question yourself, do something, but that actually to be able to reassess it. Um, this is a completely different set of, this is a completely different skill set. It's a different way of being a doctor. 
Um, and it's much more ambiguous and you have to deal with a lot more doubt. And, you know, I go home and after a take and sit in the shower and think, I should have done that. And I go and call the medical registrar back. Um, it, it's a completely different, uh, different way of being assessing. And actually, it's quite uncomfortable. Uh, and it requires more maturity to 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 do it, and I and I think that that you know, and it's not ER. Oh God, you know that's much more exciting. I look at the traumas and think, dudes, that's great, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, but but my job's not like that, and we don't train people, I think, very well to to do it anymore. Have you considered a career in general practice? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a general physician, but there's no use for my skills here. <laughs> Yeah, so that it's important to, st- you know, th- there is generalism outside general practice. Geriatricians, biggest internal medical specialty in the country, acute internal medicine doctors, in fact, emergency medicine doctors are all confident, competent generalists who are used to dealing with people with many things wrong with them. And certainly in this country, most people with organ specialties have had years and years of internal medicine training and accreditation. The problem is that their internal medicine functions competing with their their separate specialty rotor, whether it's endoscopies or whatever, but it's not they've not the training. What I wanted to talk about, though, which we haven't covered much, is you know who we're doing this for is the patient and the, often their carer, critically the, the experience. And if you look at it through the patient's eyes, and, and National Voices did great work called a narrative for person-centered coordinated care about what things look like from the person's perspective. More recently, Richmond Group have looked at multimorbidity, and the Royal College Physicians did a report about redesigning outpatient services. What people tell us is when they go to the GP, they can only talk at one problem at a time, and they, they don't have the time they want. They tell us that when they come to hospital, they're being bounced around lots of different specialty clinics, wasting time getting to and from the hospital, often going for routine follow-ups when they feel well, when what they prefer to do is contact their nurse specialist or doctor when they've got a problem they want to discuss. And they tell us that when they're in hospital for any length of time, what they want is a whole-stay clinician who's holding the ring. And a lot of this stuff doesn't lend itself to protocolizable uh, single disease pathways and outcomes. And I think <laughs> I, I think we can pay lip service to uh, patient-reported experience measures and outcome measures and person-centred care. But if we actually really embed that in the way we work, about what would I want for me or a member of my family, would I really want to be seeing, going to five different outpatient clinics 20 times a year, giving up half a day off work each time? You know, so I think it does come back to this thing about proactive care coordination and care planning far more than we we currently do and somehow redesigning general practice so that for those relative relatively small proportion of the gp load who consume a lot of time and resource that we're able to have a different offer the longer consultation more of a focus on care planning and then we're talking about people using hospital care it's how you combine the expert single disease input when it's required with the competent, confident uh, generalism. I mean, my utopian scenario is that most of acute medicine is run by geriatricians and acute internal medicine doctors because we like doing it and we're trained in it and then we get in-reach from ologists. But the reality is there aren't enough of us to do all of that for all people And is uh, there a the recognition there's not enough, I guess, interest in at the moment interest within the medical profession with healthcare in, in generalism? That at the moment the prestige for a long time in the culture of healthcare training and medicine has been around that super I think there has been an there's been an unspoken unwritten hierarchy whereby uh you know secondary and tertiary are higher status than primary and within secondary and tertiary single organ interventionism high-tech young curative is more glamorous than 
helping people live well with multiple long-term conditions. But we're fortunate in the UK because we have a national salary scale and a geriatrician will earn the same as a, a cardiologist. So we haven't got perverse pay for performance incentives, salary incentives, and we do train a lot of generalists. Um, but I, th I think there's a big push now to have more people doing more general internal medicine for more of their early training to equip people with more of those generalist skills. If you talk to young doctors in this country, though, they look at what the medical registrar does on the acute take and they can see it's punishing, it's busy, it's highly responsible. And for a lot of people, they think that isn't for me. I'd rather do something that's more outpatient focused. So I think we have to make those jobs more attractive for people to do if we want to drag more people in. I've, I fear you're painting a picture of secondary care specialists looking after numbers of uh, patients with these multi-morbid um, conditions. But if you look at the numbers, 90% of care, 90% of patient contacts happen in primary care. They don't happen in a hospital. By the time you reach a hospital, you've already got AKA, AKI, you know, one, two, three, four, or you have... Uh, a condition that already um, means that you're going to be driven through a system that leads you to poorer outcomes. 80% of people who are admitted to hospital over 75 have no GP referral because in, in their time of crisis, they default into the acute. This is not a criticism of GPs. If you look at who's in emergency departments waiting for beds, it's primarily older people with multiple life-limiting long-term conditions. So I absolutely agree with you. Most consultations happen in primary care. We haven't got the balance right. We've failed to invest sufficiently in primary and community care. Uh, but on the other hand, we don't drag people in off the streets. And if you look at the spend on acute care in the NHS, it's actually lower than most OECD countries. And we've got the smallest bed base in England of any OECD country. Obviously, I'm a hospital doctor, so I'm going to talk about secondary care doctors because that's what I do. But nonetheless, the numbers are the numbers. 90% of patient contact and the patients that you don't see are the patients that we have averted from coming to your hospital doors. I'm not saying that, that this is yours and ours. I'm saying this is all us together. But I'd like, to, I'd like to come back and talk about what it is that's happening outside of hospital doors and what's happening between our services to improve care for patients. Um, we, we've already had several years of the Primary Care Home Initiative, which has evolved into the Primary Care Network Initiative, and we can talk about that. There's also been improvements in GP access in terms of um, GP, lives, GP streaming in hospitals, digital. Um, we've actually employed... Um, e-consult and that's something I think that's uh, touching approximately 12 million patients around the country so I think that's um, they're, they're, I think they're very valuable services the other thing that we're doing locally I think which is interesting is home visiting service so we're we're involving shared posts between the hospital community services and general practice this person for this consultant a good friend of mine uh, Dr. Gabarin goes into um, care homes we picked out <coughs> seven of the top care homes in our area that have high uh, attendance rate and high ED conveyances, focusing on those and devising geriatric care plans, comprehensive geriatric care plans for these patients. And for example, that there will, I'm sure, be an audit coming out relatively soon. And she's looked at 100 patients in the space of six weeks. And that has born fruit and you can see that in the live data that we use we employ a company called Lightfoot to look at real-time data within um, within hospitals within an ED department looking specifically at the metrics around whether these patients uh, are coming in or not coming to the hospital at the moment I don't think it's clinically significant to 
enough. And I don't think we have enough of a time period to say that, but the, the results are encouraging. The other thing is um, the care homework. That's another initiative. So there are a number of, of um, shared roles, community roles. We are funding different kinds of um, models of working that will facilitate better working, I think. And I think we should move away from um, us and them and primary. Which is just the attitude yeah. you've been fermenting in everything you've said about Thank hospital you. medicine. Though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But, I, but I'm, yeah. you know, there's no point getting involved in lobbing grenades yeah. Yeah. Uh, and blaming hospital uh, clinicians for the demand that happens because people pick up in their time of need. We don't go dragging people in off the streets. But I'm glad you mentioned the care homes because there are, there are 400,000 people in care homes in this country. There's only 120,000 hospital beds. And those care home residents, by definition have very complex multiple mobility polypharmacy and they're far more likely to be admitted to hospital uh, than kind of free-range, home-dwelling older people. And they're a great example of if you do proactive care planning, care coordination, you can actually, including planning for end-of-life care, because bear in mind one in three people in a hospital bed is in the final 12 months of their life. So effectively, both the care homes and the hospitals are the missing opportunities to end-of-life care planning. So I think that's a, that's a great example. The GP streaming, we have to interpret with caution because the empirical evidence for its effectiveness is lacking at the moment. There are two big trials ongoing. Um, but I, I think we need to move away from culture wars and the language of blame between primary and secondary care because the patient doesn't recognise the difference. The patient and their family want person-centred, coordinated care, and they want the different systems to speak to each other. And despite the squeamishness about data sharing and confidentiality, they expect us to share information with one another's systems. So we don't want tribalism. Can I, sorry, can I just come in where I think um, primary care can really help? So one of the great things that we have is our IT systems. They are really quite advanced and actually we code everyone's long-term conditions. And I think what everyone, all of the panel are in agreement with uh, is that there is no one-size-fits-all model for our entire population and we need to do more population segmentation work. And actually, we're in a really good place to, to find out who this cohort are, who are these people with viable, more long-term conditions using some really good primary care data. So we need to have an approach for, for these people. And I think you, you need a few things to make this work. So you need to have, that A, the time to do the work. I agree this is all about doing really good care planning but you then also need the multidisciplinary input yes. and you need the ease of access to specialist advice as well because we can't be doing this on our own. Um, and I, I think one of the things that really hasn't been acknowledged is, is that this requires funding and it requires money. Um, and I think that that's like an elephant in the room, essentially. And often these are seen as a, it's seen as a sort of one-off intervention that you do a care plan once and that's going to fix that person's problem. No, it isn't because, you know, long-term conditions by definition are, are progressive and it's evolving and the, these people's needs are constantly changing. So, so we need to keep up and we need to, yes, it, we need to be proactive, but we need to be continuously proactive and we can't just sort of do it once and hope it's the job done and just the business about the multidisciplinary team is really important because we're doctors and so we, that's been our bias hasn't it but people with complex multiple long-term conditions frailty dementia require the support of community nurses district nurses sometimes nurse specialists physiotherapists occupational therapists speech therapists have a part to play care coordinators social care and I'm I mean, I think one good thing about the primary care home and then primary care network initiative is that um, that focus on the fact that people often need, with high high complexity, they need a multidisciplinary team to support them. 
and it isn't just about the docs. And if we keep reducing discussions of the workforce to, to doctors and nurses, we're missing a trick. Well, in fact, one of the points I was going to make is that, that one of the issues that we have is that when we look at um, community frequently with community services, which are set up, particularly those are, that are outreach from the hospital, they still are set up around single condition. Mm. So it's the so it's not even the shortness of breath outreach nurse it is the copd nurse it's the you know it's the uh, the interstitial lung disease nurse it's the lung cancer nurse um, there are some services such as palliative care or sometimes diabetes some of the vascular work is a little bit more multidisciplinary but this kind of split of disease actually also follows into the way that the mdt setting is frequently set up the physios and the ot's are very very good at assessing the patients holistically because that's what they're taught to do but some of the aspect of nursing you can still end up if you're a patient with complex disease four or five different sets of nurses coming to visit you um and and that's kind of and and in some ways it that's that's fine if the way that it's set up so if you look at the dutch model with the community visiting actually it's quite fine to have several people come to visit you because they work together they talk to each other they sit in the whole building the whole entire team is set up to deliver that kind of care but in the you know in 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 england i can't talk about scotland but in in england these people don't often even sit in the same building and they're delivering sets of care ongoing care in isolation so it's as you said it's not just the doctoring that needs to be joined up actually the nursing and the rest of the care delivery in the community in other settings also needs to be to be joined up introducing that would 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 help tackle Well, so the bird dog model is really interesting. So first of all, um, they, they're quite clear about the fact that although that they think the outcomes are good, the outcomes were not demonstrated in the studies that they've done. Although, as they point out, the studies that they've done have only extended out to one, two, and they've just gotten to three years and they're only starting to see results now. So actually persuading someone to implement a model where the numbers are not that good is actually quite difficult. And they've actually had problems um, persuading the government to give them ongoing funding. Um, you also need population density in order to do it well. Um, and as Jihad has pointed out, um, I'm also kind of quite devoted to the issue of, of smaller and rural hospitals. Delivering these sorts of models of care in places which cover large geographical areas is really difficult. And one of the, the things that I find quite interesting about it, so I come from Australia where distance is distance. Um, and it's, you know, a long straight road and you get in the car and you turn the radio up and, well, actually you'll lose the radio after a while, but you put a tape, tape in the tape deck and turn the aircon up and you drive. That's completely different from the rural complexity where actually as the crow flies, the distances are not that great. But actually because of the quality of the road, the weather conditions, the fact that it's hilly, you know, they're doing road works, it can take quite a long time to go very, very short distances. And so actually you start to run into problems with the delivery of these services actually ends up being quite cost inefficient. And so what do you do? Well, you want the patient to come back to hospital, except that's actually cost inefficient too, and the patient doesn't like it. So, you know, and, and fun, you know, funding sits underneath all of this. I, I do want to just touch on the patient experience of this. I mean, David, David has touched on it slightly, but actually, you know, what is it like to live with multimorbidity? It is, it is very stressful. And I think we really add to that as well by, you know, making people travel back and forth from appointments. And actually, these are people who are often reliant on family or informal carers or hospital transport. It is a, transport. It's a complete nightmare for them. And we, we really don't help sort of join the dots up there at all. And even the administration around, you know, outpatient appointments is it can be quite 
quite shocking. Um, you know, like they often don't know why they're com- coming to this appointment. It doesn't mean anything to them that this is endocrinology. What are they there to discuss? They've had no chance to prepare for that appointment. And so it, it often these things can be a bit of a waste. Um, and actually they've gone through a really stressful kind of journey just to get there and they're not getting much out of it. So I think there's, you know, things that we really need to look at in terms of how we structure these appointments and make them make the most out of them. I, I don't think it's ever going to go away that we're never going to, we're going to be at a stage where we're only managing them within multidisciplinary clinics. I think we will always have a bit of a specialist interface. So we do need to but, but tackle we've, that We've designed well. the outpatients have been less reformed, if you like, than acute care because of all the focus on the beds. And I'm afraid we've designed outpatients around what the providers want to do more than what the patients want or need. Because what the patients want is often a one-stop clinic where they can get initially all the investigations done first time, not have to keep coming back for every test. And they certainly don't want routine, six-month ritualistic appointments when they're feeling perfectly well. What they'd rather do is have the person on hand to phone up if they're concerned about symptoms and if they need to get seen face-to-face, they will. So... uh, um, also, I think in that Royal College report, they, the figure was something like two thirds of the traffic on the road is taking people to outpatient appointments during the working the working day. So I think we we pay lip service to to person centred care when it comes to out, outpatients. And there are presumably basic things. I mean, I, I know people who've had appointments at the same hospital or trust clashing, and you have to rearrange one, and you just think, well, that an IT system could sort that out. And you know, things where you need several checks, and they can be organised at the same time. So someone comes in once for the same set of annual checks and things. So I guess there are some administrative or technological solutions to some of this. Yeah. Well, sorry, I was just going to say. So if you go, if you go to the Mayo Clinic. Um, you see a doctor first thing so you see your specialist first thing in the morning so they start work at some ungodly hour (laughs) Uh, so but you see them they draw up a a kind of list of things that need to happen for you that day you were then assigned a porter and a schedule and you're basically wheeled around the hospital uh, and then you go off and have a you know sit in the shopping mall with a buzzer uh, and after all of your tests have been reviewed, reassessed sometime in the late afternoon, you are called back in and all of your results are delivered with a treatment plan. Um, most hospitals in the NHS won't even put your, your endoscopy and your colonoscopy in the, on the same list. They are separate scoping lists. So, you know, if you start to even think about this, you can't, frequently you can't even have, you know, go to the, to the, to the, to the, to the, to the cardiology department and have your echo and then have your 24-hour tape put on. No, you've got to come in, have your tape put on, come back the next day, have it taken off, and then come back again at some other stage for your echo. You know, we do not remotely coordinate appointment care like this. And again, it's, it's different subsets of IT systems, um, stripping of back office services, outsourcing of back office services. Frequently, the appointments are not even made in your hospital. They're made by someone else because it's been outsourced, who has no other knowledge of, of actually anything else that happens in the system, may not even be able to access the IT system. Um, you know, we are a long way behind with this sort of thing. And will some solutions from that come out of the reviews of outpatient care that's coming? Oh, well, David's better, much better equipped to answer that one than I am. Just before jumping into into that, in East Kent, East Kent covers 750,000 people and we all use EMIS <coughs> and there are other systems available. I should, uh, I should add that very quickly. <laughs> um, and we heard from Matthew yesterday that he'd like, uh, he'd, he'd like competition, as it were, and, and so on. 
Um, but within the EMIS system, we have something called the MIG, which is a medical interoperability gateway, which is embedded within the system. And it's a read-only system, but it's it's so simple. You, you click a button as you would an app, and it links you directly into your hospital sector, into your ambulance, into your mental health, and other services as well. And we're working hard to link in other providers into that. Although it's read-only, you can go down to the level of nursing notes. You can look at discharge summaries, you can look at hospital attendances, you can look at upcoming outpatient appointments. So that is really quite useful in cutting down the amount of bureaucracy and the amount of transportation time and so on. And I think if a system like that can exist at East Kent, then I'm sure it can exist in other places. And finally, the uh, in terms of straddling primary and community and secondary we have a team called the art team and what they do is they they have a gp led team so the gp acts as a consultant person and they have a team underneath them and they they sit within the hospital and they take patients out of the ed department and out of ambulatory care and look after them at home for a period of five days and somebody goes into the home, gives them the antibiotics, gives them whatever care they need, the inhalers and so on and so forth, and ensures that they have regular follow-up and blood tests, and the discharge summary goes back to the GP, and there's connection immediately if the person needs a follow-up visit. But they take care of the person in full. Now, the, the value of that is that you have a trusted assessment model that people will adhere to across the system. You don't have to reassess the patient, you don't have to mistrust the assessment, and you don't have to reinvestigate the patient. And I think there are also models that we could think about and how we could move that forward. There is a certain amount of scale, I think, that is possible. So we have some signs of, uh, so, some signs of life. <laughs> Remy, have you got any sort of examples of potential solutions around this? Um, yeah, so what, are there some work going on in my practice at the moment? So um, it's, it's driven by the um, ambition to reduce... Uh, avoidable admission so I think the pretext pretext is probably wrong but the idea is right Um, and again we are so it's looking at these the group of uh, people within the population not right at the top of the pyramid but the segment just below that um, who are at sort of rising risk and are likely to be you know having hospital admissions in the next year or so Um, and actually we're proactively inviting these patients in and we're trying to do care planning for them. And this involves, you know, doing medication reviews, trying to do deep prescribing, setting ceilings of care, you know, making really explicit what, what this patient wants. So, you know, do not put me back on this antihypertensive. Um, you know, I live at home on my own and I'm at risk of falls and I don't want that to happen. It's things like that. And th- this sort of information needs to be carried around with the patient. It can't be the thing that they have to sort of repeat over and over again or it's just completely missed out in the time of a crisis. So I think the idea, you know, is there and, and it gives us a chance to do all that sort of, you know, the DNAR discussions and all of that. But it, I think the frustration for me is just the time. Um, and I, uh, you know, it's a real, real issue. And I, I, I struggle because sometimes I feel like I don't do it well. And, and that's that's t- tough to deal with. So will the solution from this, I guess the problem arises from the, uh, fundamentally from the increase in longevity from people not dying from conditions and then living longer with more and more and the, the conditions accumulate. So will the, will the um, solutions come from lots of little things that will just work better and better and better? Or should we expect some sort of 
overhaul of systems that will tackle this, some introduction of a magic new thing, or should we expect it just over the course of the next 10, 15 years, each of these little problems will be tackled? And yeah, I think it's multi-level. So like I said, there's stuff that needs to be done in medical education and the way that we assess um, yeah, medical students, postgraduate exams. Um, there's upskilling clinicians in terms of their use of guidelines, um, the, the use of shared decision-making, um, there is, you know, taking a really proactive approach to care, segmenting populations. And also what we haven't mentioned is um, involving patients in the design of this care. So actually, you know, we pay a lot of lip service to this, but have we actually asked them what they what they want? There's a lot of talk about sort of virtual appointments or e-consultations and all sorts of things. But actually, I, I, I you know, see the patients in surgery and they're just like, no, I don't, I don't want to do this. I've tried this and it's really not working out for me. So there's a piece of work to do there around what it is that actually works for this group of people as well. And listening to the patients yeah. will be key to that. Yeah. Are there any questions from elsewhere in the room? Is anyone would like to come in? So my name's Kate Lissett. I'm a secondary care doctor delivering diabetes care in Torbay and South Devon. And one of the points that I've thought about is we've heard a lot about our experience of delivering the care for patients, whether it's in primary or secondary care or in their homes. But we've, what I haven't heard a lot about is what it's like to live and deliver your own care. So my patient group in particular are delivering 12 self-care actions every single day for diabetes alone, let alone their renal disease, peripheral vascular disease, respiratory disease. And some patients or some people seem to manage this really well and some people really struggle and there's a really big difference between how often they present and how well they do and I'd be interested in how we learn from the people who are managing this well and it's not my area of expertise it's their lived experience and how we support the people who aren't managing so well to learn from the people who are so I think we've talked a lot about whether it's primary or secondary care, but it's the patients who are living with this, who are doing the self-care actions every single day. And if they if they do it well, we don't need to see them as much. And that, I think that's the, the key thing that we need to think about as well. How do we support them in doing it well? David, did you want to? Well, I, I think a diabetologist has far more experience of supported self-management than an acute side physician like me. So, yeah, I could, of course, we, most people live with their conditions most of the time without any contact with health professionals. And, of course, self-management goes alongside the kind of care planning and care coordination. Um, but I think we also have to bear in mind that a lot of people are not activated patients. Some people are frail or have dementia or sensory impairment or social deprivation. Or, In fact, we heard from uh, Thea, who's in the audience, about the uh, My COPD app in Leeds, where actually a lot of people were kind of digitally excluded and struggling to use the app. So, no, I mean, I think we, I hope we did talk about the, 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 the patient experience being more, should be more of a driver. But I, I would say, in general, there's no shortage of stuff out there already about any of what good looks like. And in fact, in the NHS 10-year plan, there's a, there's a load of stuff about uh, personalised care and care planning and personal care budgets and supportive self-care. The issue isn't... Uh, good practice examples, good practice guidance or understanding of what patients want. It's the the genuine investment uh, in resource and workforce uh, and IT to make to make to make it happen. Martin McShane, I'm a Chief Medical Officer at Optum and um, erstwhile Domain Director for Long Term Conditions. Um, are we trapped in framing this in a way which retains a biomedical model? And would it be helpful to 
ditch the word multimorbidity and reframe this as managing complexity, which would then allow us to think about beyond health care to health, because health care is about 20% of health. And what I've heard is, your man, the problems were housing, isolation. We talk about the communities that people live in. And if you go to Hilary Cottam's work on radical help, do we need to rethink the way we're approaching this so that we don't trap ourselves and think it's a combination of conditions, but it's actually complexity that people are carrying. And if we looked at their complexity and the risk within that, it would help us reframe how to deal with this in a personalised way. I mean, the only thing I'd, I'd like to add to that is I, I think there's loads of good things happening in the voluntary sector and we by no means are harnessing the full potential of that. So I think there's definitely work to be done there. Um, but I also wanted to come back on the point of sort of supported self-management. I mean, I, I, you know, you can really see the positive benefits for patients when it works, but it's often set up again around single disease conditions. And actually, you know, could we encourage or drive this for multimorbidity? I think that would be a, a really good thing to do because I think there are um, things that we can, you know, that patients can share and learn, learn from each other. But I think sort of tying in with your point, Martin, is also around advocacy. So because not everybody is going to be able to do that sort of thing. And there are a group of people who just need advocates. And if they don't have family or or people who will do that for them, who who is going to step in and do that? So those are the kind of bigger picture things that we need to consider beyond health, I think. Hi, um, I thought I'd pick up because David mentioned Thea. Um, Chief Executive Lease Community um, and talked about my COPD app and um, one of the things I couldn't agree with you more about self-help and also well I Radical Help is one of my favourite books and ways of framing the way in which we think about this um, I completely agree with Luella because um, I run community services in deeply inadequate ways as were described by disease segments so we can end up with many people coming being brilliant in one segment. But one of the things we did because we couldn't recruit enough nurses into our community teams a couple of years ago, so it wasn't because of brilliance, it was because of, of panic, we started to recruit people we called self-care facilitators to just try and help and support people so that actually the precious nurses we had didn't have to go in constantly to the out-of-control diabetic or to the person who was finding a problem with eye drops. And they were people who were trained but were not professional in any way. We now have that embedded as part of our teams because it became such an excellent way of working and we recruit people from all sorts of professions. We've got people who are now policemen who've come in to do it and people from teaching have come in to do it. And my favourite story is of a very complex patient who was continuously um, out of control and having hospital admissions, etc., etc. But what the um, self-care facilitator was able to ascertain is they couldn't read. And at the basis of everything was the fact that we kept giving them information to read and leaving them information to read, and it took them a very long time to tell them us that he couldn't read. So that's my story. Mm. Um, Al Molly from Dartmouth. I just want to pick up what Martin and um, Thea have, uh, have addressed. Um, what, what makes a system complex is people trying to exercise whatever agency they can, um, regardless of how limited that is. And it's, it's really important to understand that, that we are working in a complex system delivering complex interventions to 
people living with complexity in their own complex system of community and neighbors and, and, and friends. And, and that makes things um, uh, that we ask of them um, more or less difficult. And we don't have any mechanism for setting priorities and helping them set priorities. Let me just give you a very quick example. I have never heard a doctor say to a patient, I don't have enough time to give you. You've just got too many problems. I've never had a patient say to me, I don't have enough discipline to do everything you're asking me to do. <laughs> and and, and, and because, we, because we don't acknowledge those constraints, we instinctively don't set priorities. Okay? So if somebody has diabetes, there's the blood pressure, the eyes, the lipids, the, 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 the kidneys, and of course the glucose, right? If they also have congestive heart failure, there are another 10 things that we might be asking them to do, and maybe a priority is the fluid balance, right? So if you take somebody who has three conditions, on average, you're gonna find 15 or 20 things that we ask of them. You can go to the evidence, but the evidence is all single condition. So you have to have a very, very light hand and do some Bayesian subjective assessment of what the priorities might be if you wanted to be as evidence-based as possible to maintain their health and well-being over the next five years. But then you need to reprioritize the top five based on what's easier or hard for them to do. Because if you just go by the evidence and say, you do this, that's what the evidence says, and what you put your finger on is something that's really hard, and something that they're not confident about, you've demoralized them. You haven't supported them, you haven't energized them. So this is the way in which you can think about shared decision-making in, in real life, setting priorities for people with complex um, complexity because of multiple conditions. And, and you need exactly the kind of intervention that Theo was just describing. We, we need non-professionals trained as generalists with the relational skills to earn the trust, and you do that by letting people understand that you understand a little bit or at least curious about the context in which they live their lives. Uh, although I'm married to an American, I think we may have just surfaced a cultural uh, difference there because uh, I hear doctors in the NHS telling people day in, day out, they don't have enough time, and I do it myself, and I know it happens in primary care as well. In a, in a, in a resource-constrained system where people are, are pressurised and time is limited, we're quite explicit about the fact that we, we don't have the time to give people the kind of attention and consideration that they might require. I think the business about complexity, by now the entire health policy commentary at both here and internationally acknowledges that it's not just about the medical model, it's biopsychosocial, and those other factors are important and it requires whole communities. That's a truism. It's presented as some kind of challenging of orthodoxy, but actually everybody's been saying that for ages. The issue is how you actually make that happen. And what we've done in this country is we've slashed local government funding, which in turn has slashed funding for public health and for the voluntary sector. And RGPs, if you look at the recent comparison between 11 high-income nations in the BMJ, are seeing about twice as many patients a day as GPs in any other country. We have the fewest doctors and nurses <laughs> per thousand. We have the fewest hospital beds. And the issue is not reinventing the wheel um, and nor should we assume that everybody is an activated self-management you know, IT literate person and impose that solution on them. Plenty of people just want to go and see the, the doctor when they re require help. But absolutely right. If you put people like housing officers in acute care or you put people like care coordinators, system navigators, systems advice people in primary care, it can help deal with some of that complexity the patients themselves aren't that bothered about whether the label is having long-term conditions or complexity what they want 
is somebody to reassure them and support them when they've got questions and they've got concerns. And and I think we, in the policy bubble that most of us live in, we've got mired in using language like asset-based approaches and total place. And all. We need the actual investment and the workforce and the policy to make this stuff a lived reality. And if GPs are seeing 40 or 50 people a day at 10-minute intervals, and I'm typically seeing 35 or 40 new admissions in a 12-hour shift, we can't give people that degree of care and time and attention that is required to make care more more person-centred. And if you watch what's going to happen to the NHS 10-year plan, despite all the aspirations about ageing well and person-centred care, very clearly that will be marginalised in favour of the usual suspects of wait time targets, urgent care performance, and uh, probably the implementation of primary care networks because uh, you can only pick one or two high-profile priorities. So I don't want to finish on a negative note, but I don't see this changing without adequate investment in the workforce to give people the time to do this well. And coming back to Ramia's point, the way we train people, they don't spend enough time in primary care, they don't spend enough time talking about proactive management of people with multiple long-term conditions. It's still predicated around single disease uh, pathways far too much. That's it for this podcast. Thanks to our panel, Luella Vaughan, Jihad Malassi, Remya Matthew and David Oliver. This podcast is available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify and pretty much wherever else you get your podcasts from. If you're interested in this kind of policy discussion, have a look back through our catalogue where we've had more from the Nuffield Summit. In previous years we've talked about getting HR fixed in the NHS, why workforce matters, what the future of secondary care might be and how we might reduce demand. All that is free, so check it out now. I'm Tom Moberly, the UK editor of the BMJ. Thank you for listening.